from Carry the Load, these are lessons from the front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. It's 2 a.m., you're a police officer, and you see something that doesn't look quite right. You can either make an investigative stop or you can just let it go because that's the safest route for both your safety and your career. After all, it's not a 911 call, which you are duty-bound to answer, but rather a proactive investigative stop that can prevent a bad chain of events from ever happening. In my conversation with Dallas Police Chief Eddie Garcia, he pointed out to me that there's not a police chief in America who can force an officer to make that stop. Stops which he says are critical to the emotional safety of the citizens of a city. And police officers will only make those stops if they feel supported by their chain of command and administration. And judging by the direction of the police department morale and crime statistics in Dallas, his officers feel that support. I'm sure Chief Garcia has his critics, but I haven't found them yet. His candid leadership style and apparent transparency just scream hope that fairness and accountability can and should coexist. In a time where the need for leadership is overshadowed by the greed for politics, we might just be seeing a return to the meaning of protect and serve. Chief, you spent 29 years in the San Jose Police Department. And if I read my homework correctly, you touched on just about every job you could have. <laughs> Can you recall a time where you go, man, I just don't know if this is worth it. No, I don't, I don't think, no. And I'm, I've been honest the entire time. I don't, this was, I was, I, you know, I tell my recruits the same thing. You know, they were born to do this job. Um, you know, yeah, there's there's people that think they weren't born to do this job that did something else and then came here. But I think innately internally they were they were they were born to do this job. So um, what so on the opposite side of that, what's what's the moment that sticks out to you that says, This is worth it? This right here encapsulates everything that I signed up for. Oh man, the amount of times, and I can't remember a specific, but the amount of times when you have, uh, whether, you know, whether it's on beat patrol, you know, finding someone's, uh, child that was lost and seeing the look on a parent's face, uh, to, um, you know, to, uh, to being a homicide investigator and solving a, solving a murder and seeing that family come in in tears because they have justice for their, for their, for their loved one. Um, it's just, there's, 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 there's milestones across every police officer's career. Um, and I'll be, it's probably something that happens every day. You're like, man, this is, this is why I do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a story. Cause I was, I was a chief in San Jose and we had a community meeting, uh, in a, in a neighborhood that had gang issues. And as we're going up to the community meeting, you know, and I'm jovial with my cops and, you know, and when, a, when an officer comes up and he goes, Hey, you know, uh, there was this woman at that same time, me and the other and the other officer are getting out of their cars to go to this community meeting. And there's this woman pushing a stroller. Uh, and this was a uh, Latino, uh, mostly Spanish speaking neighborhood. And and she was pushing a stroller with a younger, maybe a three or four year old walking in front of the stroller. And they're walking and they're walking towards a community meeting. And. 
the officer goes, Chief, what are we doing here? What are we going to do? What, what are we doing here right now? You know, in a way of like, we're here at another community meeting. What are we doing here? Whatever. And I get, I get how cops at times need to be, t- right. you know, need to make sense of why they're here or whatever. And I remember to this day stopping smiling and I pointed, and this is in a neighborhood that's impacted by violent crime, pointed to that woman pushing her stroller with the baby in the front. And I'll never forget telling that officer, that's why we're here. And I do hope that officer remembers that. And I, you know, it was more of a, it wasn't like, hey, kid, you should know what. It was, you know what, sometimes in this line of work, you may not see, you, you are so impacted by the evil and bad that happens that you need to also be exposed to the good. Um, you know, as I tell my community, the first time we see our community can't be in a moment of crisis. Well, the same thing goes for our officers. The right. first time the community meets them can't be in a moment of crisis, and this was not a crisis moment. And so I'll never forget pointing to the woman pushing the stroller and going, that's why we're here. Because they're worth it. Because they are absolutely worth it. And I got that same sense of emotion um, you know, walking through neighborhoods and talking to people. And I tell you what, being able to come back, I mean, you know, I've been doing this, I'm like my 31st year of being a police officer. And I tell you what, that pumps me up. That's why I know, I'm, I, I, that's why I know I was, that's why I know when I can tell you that I love the grind. Were you ever an undercover police officer? <laughs> you know, we, I worked some undercover police. Yeah. I think I was 24, I think 24, 25 when I first got into that unit. That's gotta be scary. I mean, really, and and not just for the individual. I mean, I know you were excited about it. There's a there's a rush that you get when you put on the uniform. Uh, there's a you, you put it on because action is out there somewhere, and and you're you're drawn to it. But it's scary from the standpoint of when you have a family. And I I mean I know that there's some undercover guys that have families. I just don't know how you do that. Well, you know, I'll tell you what. I mean, there's two particular cases that I that I remember. Uh, one that was that got my heart pumping. The other one was a little bit more uh, uh, wasn't as uh, wasn't as stressful. But I'll never forget the very first undercover buy that I did. You know, you had uh, my close cover team was there, and I go to uh, to uh, to a house uh, for coke uh, back in the early '90s. That was it was rampant in uh, in the Bay Area in California. And I remember going into the I remember knocking on the door, and it was a wrought iron gate. And then a door, both open. You know, I go in by myself, obviously, and the guy closes the wrought iron gate, locks like three locks, closes the uh, the front door with like two or three locks, and spoke to him in Spanish about what I was there for, what I needed, and he has me sit down in his living room, and he goes to the back room, to obviously to get the product. And I remember thinking to myself... I'm thinking of my, my, you know, my, you know, my, the phrase that we all give when we, when we're in dire help, uh, to let my close cover come in. But I'm thinking to myself, man, this guy's going to the back room. Uh, you know, I don't know what he's going to get. Uh, has he made me? Has he seen me before? Um, and I remember my heart pumping, right. And racing and him coming back out with the product. And I was in pocket with, uh, with uh, what with, with I was ordering, and I ended up walking out, but I will never forget those three to five minutes that seemed like a half an hour. And obviously, I, you know, at the time, I, I, I didn't have a family, but I can't only imagine uh, what our undercovers go through in times like that. And I've heard different stories from what they've had to go through. And those are the type of things, obviously, they don't get a lot of press, but, you know, our men and women are doing that every day. 
uh, and it's incredibly important. And what they go through to do that absolutely critical job and the stress that they must go through and what their families go through. I mean, that's hard. Not knowing every day that when your spouse walks out the door, they may or may not come back in. That's hard on a family. Incredibly hard on the family. And, and it's almost like, and it's sad that you have to do this in our, in our beloved profession, but it's like the don't ask, don't tell when you get home. You know, I, in, you know, when you do end up having a family, there's not a lot of conversation about what you did during the day. Uh, there's kind of a taboo. It was absolutely taboo. I talk about that all the time. Um, to not have, you know, it's one thing you want to protect them from the dangers that you go through on a daily basis. But man, it would have been nice just to talk about some things when you got home as well without the fear that you're making them worry more than, like you're almost selfish. Like in one way, you want to talk it through with them mm. so they can help you through it. But at the end of the day, it's almost, I almost felt selfish that by talking it through so that I could feel better, my realization in my head was, okay, that might make you feel better, but it's certainly not going to let make your 10-year-old, your 8-year-old yeah. feel any better. It's certainly not going to let your partner or your wife feel safer yeah. when you walk out that door. So you did that to make yourself feel better, but they're certainly not feeling better as you walk out the door smiling and joking that you're going out to work with it's this like unit. You take it out of your bucket, pour it into theirs. Hey, I feel a lot better, and now all of a sudden they got it in their bucket. No, okay, exactly so, right. so I, I want to go back, though. I want to finish that story because, you know, take take – everybody through you're sitting on this couch i counted five locks between two doors three to five minutes this guy's going back there my guess is if you weren't wearing a wire they wouldn't have been able to hear anything anyway because your heart would have been pounding so hard when he comes out take me through what's going through your mind as he's coming out and you're seeing the first bit of his step or his body well, you know, it's, it's interesting because, and this is where our undercovers are so well-trained because these crooks are looking for any sign that you're a cop, right? Um, obviously here in Texas, a little bit different, but in California, not everyone carried a gun, mm -hmm. right? Whereas here, it seems somewhat routine where, yeah, right. a guy's buying dope from you. Uh, he probably might have, have a gun in the, and we've had a lot of murders in our city in that, in that same situation, but in California, not everyone does. So obviously I'm armed. Uh, I do have a wire, but as he's coming out, you know, you're doing the old cop, the, the cop stuff that you're trained to do. Okay. Where are his hands? Um, you know, is, do I see bulges? Is he, what's he carrying or what have you? And although you need to do that for your officer safety at the same time, it actually is counterintuitive because by you doing that, it may tip him off exactly. that something's up. So having to balance that and that nervousness and, you know, the interesting part about it is those moments that seemed like forever because really there's not that much excitement to the end of the story, really. I mean, we made a buy. We ended up doing, we ended up doing a couple, we ended up getting a search warrant on the house later on and busted them out for the sales and the possession uh, for sales. But it almost ends up being routine. And you forget about it until you remember those critical moments when you were sitting there. So it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's definitely, it definitely gets the heart pumping a little bit. And unless you're used to it, I tell you what, it's not, uh, you definitely got to be trained for it. You definitely have to have some street smarts. Yeah. You know, you got to have some street smarts, street smarts to know. Um, so, and this is just me being really curious. If he would have said to you, just to kind of 
test the waters and make sure you are who you said. If he's, if he would have said, "Hey, I want you to, you know, take a bump here," or whatever the terminology is, I'd watch TV. Mm-hmm. Um, could you have done that as a police officer? No, absolutely not. You you got to talk your way out of it. Okay. Uh, you talk your way out of. Hey, I'm on probation. Um, you know, I got to go meet my PO after this. I'm gonna save this for later, or I'm gonna use it for this weekend because I'm going out. Um, or you know, my friend's outside, or my girlfriend dropped me off here, and she doesn't want to see me. Know. She doesn't want to see me high. There's a, a things you can do, but it's almost this, the the other time that I bought dope. I bought dope downtown. I bought a rock of crack. Um, and it's, by the way, it's really weird to hear the chief of police say that. I just <laughs> I just want to say. So I, on duty, by the way. I'll <laughs> say that the so I'm there and wired up, and we're doing an operation downtown. A lot of crack dealing was going on downtown at the time, and this guy's riding a bike. I make eye, eye contact with him, and and I ask him. Uh, you know, that in he, maybe we make eye contact. He sits next to the bus, the bus bench with me. Uh, and he starts talking to me and this is what was good. This is when I was like, okay, I, I, I could probably, I could do this. So he looks at me and he goes, and I'll never forget this. And again, I was young, I had hair and he looks at me and he goes, man, you're a cop. You're way too fresh to be out here, uh, buying, you're a cop. And I laugh and I make some expletives laughing and I go, I'm the chief. And I said this at like 24, 25 years old as an officer. And it's just a funny story now as I sit here as a police chief. Yes. And I told him I'm the chief and he laughs it off and he puts the rock. This is the best part about it. He puts the rock on the bench right next to me. He has me put the money on the bench, assuming that that's not going to be a buy or a hand to hand. Uh, take the rock, take some money, takes off. And we were doing by bus at the time. So we ended up busting him out a few times later, but it was at that point where I'm like, man, you just got to talk. If you can talk, it doesn't matter what you look like, who you are. If you can talk, uh, was a fortuitous comment that you made. Yeah, huh? it was, it was funny. And for the longest time, our DA in, uh, in the County that I was in, he had, he had my report and you know, what was he transcribed the wire and he had that on his wall. Because he it thought it was did. the funniest thing in the world. And when the guy weird. asked me I was a cop, I said, I'm the, not only am I a cop, I'm the expletive I'm... chief. <laughs> and he laughed it off, and he made the drug deal, and, and, and we busted him out, and the rest was history. Did you ever see him again? No, I didn't see him again. So when you were sitting on the couch, um, uh, you talked about how scared you were. It, it, but was that the most scared you've ever been? Um, no. no it, it certainly wasn't the most scared I've been. Um, you know, as cops, we do some, some stupid things where we, we, we do things that puts us in danger and, you know, things that I have learned, you know, about officer safety and things of that mm-hmm. nature, you know, when like you're, what? well, I'll give you an example. You know, I was, I was a proactive officer, uh, and I would make car stops or pedestrian stops and one absolute bonehead move, um, I've made a couple, but one of them was I ended up and I didn't put myself out on a pet stop and I stopped four guys, um, at a bar. Um, when you say, I just need to be clear. You said I didn't put myself out on a pet stop, meaning you didn't communicate. I'm sorry. I didn't communicate. To, I didn't communicate okay. over the radio okay. that I was on a pedestrian stop. Okay. And I start pat searching, uh, cursory searching these, these, these guys for weapons mm-hmm. And the first guy clear, second guy clear. The third guy is on pat searching him, has a loaded 45 uh, in his waistband. Now, again, 
We're in Texas here. In California, it's very rare right. uh, for someone uh, to be carrying uh, a concealed right. firearm. And, you know, obviously all of a sudden I put myself out, man with a gun, here's where I'm at. And I look, we were down an alleyway, and I look at the main street, and I see the cruisers going left and going up, up the street, red lights and siren, back red lights and siren, because they can't find me. I got them all proned out. Um, anyway, Are make you a long- drawn at this point? Oh, I'm drawn. Absolutely, okay. I'm drawn. And take them all into custody. It was the stupidest thing I ever done. Um, and, uh, you know, officer safety to me is paramount. And, you know, you're not necessarily, that's, that fear doesn't hit you at the moment, but then you start thinking, like, what were you doing? What did you do that for? Um, and so, you know, other, another instance where, uh, you know, I ended up stopping uh, a guy from an outlaw motorcycle gang. And he comes out, and he was a very well-known outlaw motorcycle gang who's actually dead now. It's actually, he was killed. Uh, in, was that uh, recently? No, this was a few years, this was a few years back. Okay. Okay. And he comes out. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm a young cop and you know, this is where the learning experience comes on how to talk to people. And, and I, and I, and I bring him out and I pat search him and he was a big dude and he smiles at me and he goes, bro, if I had a shank, I would have stuck you by now. And it hit me all of a sudden. Cause I'm like, we think we're so invincible in this uniform. Right. He and said, if I would have had a shank. I would have stuck you by now. I, you, you know, when now. that happened, man, I've been a cop. I'm on my 31st year. This probably happened about 26 years ago. And I'll remember those words, him just smiling. And me thinking to myself later on, like, man, if that dude was wanted, he 100% would have done what he said he would do. And, you know, fat, dumb, and happy me uh, thinking that this uniform, uh, you know, makes us invincible. Um, Why do you think that is? I think there's a there's a perception and vision um, of those of us, those of us that wear the uniform that as soon as we walk in, people will stand at attention. Uh, as soon as what we walk in, people are going to do what we want them to do uh, because of what we represent mm -hmm. um, with the uniform. And you know, I, and it's not about that. It's about respect. Um, you know, you don't want we don't I don't want people to fear me. I want people to respect me. Um, I think that's what we want, right? We Absolutely. want respect, not fear uh, in our communities, uh, or regardless of what we're doing, right? But, you know, it's just one of those things that, but again, you know, this isn't like, and I tell people all the time, this isn't like, what's that movie? Um, Judge Dredd, where, you know, when they were like literally making uh, whatever they called them at the time in that movie, where they were making them in a, yeah, I don't. A, I don't know that I saw that. Now that I'm thinking about, it. Was, were they? But did they? Did they fabricate? Yeah, they were like officers? fabricating police officers. Okay. They were like okay. fabricating police officers, right? And they're, you know, when they're fabricated, they're all ready to go. This is a learning experience on this job, man. I am such a different cop today than I was when I started, um, in a lot of in a lot of ways. But that one experience, really, I would have handled that completely different, you know, uh, today than than I did then. But uh, but, and but so certainly if one of you your learn. officers did that today, okay, let me shift gears to the leadership side a little bit. One of your officers did that today. How do you handle something like that as a leader? Well, you know, I've been there. I've done it. Um, and I don't want to see my officers 
getting hurt. And I've admitted it several times. I would tell that story of me stopping the four people and going, don't ever do that. Um, it's not worth it. Um, it doesn't matter because at the time I was on the radio a lot and I would think to myself, make, I'm making all these, if I'm making all these stops, you know what? I don't want to bug anybody. I don't want to bug communications. I don't want, here's what I thought. I don't want the old timer that's sitting behind somewhere doing nothing going, there goes that young kid again, making it. So, you know, cause I was a young kid on an older team when I first, when I, when, when I got started out there. So you were afraid of inconveniencing other people that wore the uniform. That's what I heard you say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I didn't. Yeah, that's exactly. Cause I was, you know, there's a lot of us that, that, that do it. And, you know, I like to think that's, that's the, as you mentioned earlier, the, I was blessed to have worked the amount of units and places that I was because, you know, a lot of us have a certain type of way we wanted to do this job and I didn't want to inconvenience people. Um, but as a leader, and I think people respect this is when you've made mistakes and you've learned from them and you explain, I don't want you doing this. All right. And, and even if you have to discipline someone at some point, separating the fact from, listen, is this a mistake of the mind or mistake of the heart? Mm -hmm. Let's train people to the best we can. And there's some things you can't train, obviously, when they're mistakes right. of the mistakes of the heart and other egregious things. But to get an understanding and to explain, right? as to the reasoning behind doing things of that nature and explain, I don't want you hurt. I don't want to have to go. Um, I've given flags out. Um, I don't want to be that person going to, going to tell your mom, wife, dad, or whatever would happen to you. You don't want another officer having to come in to then, and then they get possibly hurt. Uh, and so, you know, you know, discipline can range from a lot of things, but it, discipline, the, the definition of discipline is training. And however that really happens, you know, that's something that I gauge on a daily basis. But again, I'm also, I got to look at myself in the mirror and, you know, you know, I have those terms that, you know, uh, you know, don't forget where you come from. I've been stupid. I've made those stupid mistakes that we can't make um, to keep ourselves safe. Um, and if, if my men and women can learn, I mean, to me, honestly, um, it wasn't my time. There's several times in my career where it was not my time, where had it been my time, it'd have been tough. But there were several times because of my own mistakes that I have to look back and go, and the only reason I'm still here is because it was just not my time. Um, and we need to recognize that. Um, I mean, each of us needs to recognize and to do, and to do this better uh, for ourselves, for our family and for our community. Uh, you know, we say this all the time, but when we lose an officer, it's not just department loss. It's a community loss. It's a country's loss. Um, and so uh, learning those things and, you know, you want to change behavior and set a standard for the organization. Right. So uh, however I discipline, I always look at those two prongs. I'm, I'm going to shift gears a little bit between San Jose and Dallas now. So San Jose, not as big a city. What about? 750, 800,000 people? It's about 1.1. 1.1. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's definitely grown. It's now. just, it's, so San Jose, 1.1, but it's half the size geographically of the city of Dallas. Okay, okay. What was the biggest adjustment you had to make as a leader coming in? Deal, I mean, a lot of it's the same, but there's a lot of differences. Like you said, carrying guns here is, is not uncommon. Well, I think the biggest thing coming here, just really, there's some things that I can't, pass over is the fact that 
you know, you have to put your finger on the pulse of the morale of the rank and file. Yes. See where they're at. That's first and foremost. Very large organization, spread out organization, seven stations, uh, different corners of the city, and really doing your best to hit every station and doing your best to get out to understand the work that the men and women are doing. Um, police works, police work. Um, I can say that having been now in two major cities in two different states. And, um, and so that's the first and foremost is making sure, Hey, are your officers happy? Are, are they, are they, are they, are they happy coming to work? Are they happy doing the job? Do they have the support they need? Because nothing's going to work if your men and women don't believe in what you're trying to accomplish. Nothing. And I think oftentimes as chiefs, we may, some, some of my colleagues at times may forget that or may not put that first, but you can't accomplish anything without doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second part really is just the, the diversity and really uh, of the city um, and the different uh, racial makeups of Dallas, which are were different than San Jose. Saying that, that our diversity here is much greater than it was in San Jose? Uh, not, I don't, not greater, but different. Okay. Different. And understanding what's important to those community groups, you know, um, and, uh, and really understanding that. And once you understand what's important to the community, because here's the thing with I, and I say this all the time, I, 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 you know, as we talk about this, you know, when we talk about the false narrative that's been around the country, particularly these last few years, um, like I listen to my neighborhoods first. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I've not met a neighborhood in the city of Dallas um, or San Jose, quite frankly, that regardless of language spoken, racial makeup or economic background has ever asked me for less police. And in fact, unfortunately, it's our communities of color that oftentimes live in areas that are impacted by violence that plead for more presence of our officers. They want honorable men and women. They want to be uh, they want uh, proper public safety. They want to be uh, they want us to be procedurally just, but they don't want us to go away. And so getting that dynamic from our community as to what they want. Um, is really the biggest learning curve, I think, that and figuring out what your officers want. What are they thirsting for? Are they thirsting for yeah, leadership? There's, there's a lot of balance there that you have to, to strike. There's a lot of balance, but that's exactly, you said the key word, it's balance. Yeah. What we have to do with our communities is not in lieu of, it's in addition to. Um, and so, and then understanding the politics as well. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately, um, you know, I also come from a city that was uh, city manager strong. It was city mm-hmm. manager council form of government. Uh, so I really have, you know, I have a lot of bosses, um, you know, uh, understanding the importance of our mayor, uh, who is the only elected official that's elected by the entire city. Mm-hmm. Understanding that our mayor is the spokesperson for our city when it comes from a, a city government perspective. Understanding that and giving that position and that man the respect that he deserves as well is hugely important. Uh, knowing that, you know, I have a city manager, but that I also have to respond to the council members um, because my job is for them all to succeed so that my manager could succeed and so that and the mayor succeeds as well. But I tell you what was easy here, which was different than California, is the support. I, and I preface it as there's a lot of great and amazing people in California. And you're right. California is a great state in some aspects. But one place where they where they where they drop the ball a little bit is being able to recognize that we can hold law enforcement accountable mm-hmm. while at the same time still honoring the work that honorable men and women do for their communities. And for whatever reason, they, they just can't seem to really as a whole. Yeah. You know, as a whole, um, be able to to be able to just to stand up and say that, uh, you know, one of the dynamics and you know. 
this may sound political, but I don't mean it to sound political when I say this. That's all right. I'll keep you in check on you that You keep one, me I in promise. check. Well, you know what? Listen, I hear all the time with regards, and I told this story to a group of homicide. I, was, I had the honor to be invited to speak to about 1,000 homicide investigators at a conference in Vegas recently where I said what I'm about to say to you is that, you know, when we talk about this, this, this isn't about politics. Um, you know, I said, I have a Democratic mayor, all right, in Eric Johnson. And I tell you what, being part of major city chiefs, uh, there is not a mayor in this country that is more supportive of public safety and police than our mayor who happens to be a Democrat. I said, I have a Republican governor who has undeniable support mm -hmm. for law enforcement. I said, how is that? How is it at the state of Texas that I can have a Democratic mayor and a Republican governor that both can agree that the most important thing for communities and neighborhoods is to make sure that they're safe and to hold us accountable, but yet still honor the work that our men and women do to keep them safe? It's not about politics. It's about common sense. And we have lost that. And until some of our not in, until some cities in this country recognize that. It's a tough. It's going to be tough to move the needle. Yeah. Since you went there, I'm going to uh, I'm going to piggyback on that because I read something on Seattle the other day. Um, if what is being read is accurate. The law-abiding citizens there have to be scared witless. So if I if I remember correctly, Seattle is up around eight hundred to a thousand, or excuse me, eight hundred thousand to a million residents uh, inside the city limits. They're the active law enforcement numbers are something like eight hundred and fifty. Eight hundred and fifty officers to protect that city. And if I'm not mistaken, we're up, we're closer in Dallas to 3,500. Uh, no, we're getting close to 3,100, 3,100. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll say this. I've been to Seattle several times. It's a beautiful city. Um, you know, my heart goes out to the men and women of that department. Uh, I know their chief personally. Um, he's a great man. Um, and they're one of the things again is we can't throw our hands up in the air. As difficult as it sounds of what you may be saying, you know, there may be some, you know, some validity to it. You know, truly, oftentimes it's, you know, if, if they go, who's left? Exactly. Um, and, That's what I'm saying. The law-abiding citizens have to be just scared. And, and, you know, unless the city of Seattle is different than every city I've been to, they're simply not listening to their neighborhoods. Um, because I may mention, I'll fall back to what I said a little bit ago that I've yet to meet a neighborhood that's impacted by crime that is asking for less of us. Yeah. Um, and so that's the disconnect. Um, you know, when I see, I done some interviews with, with, you know, news agencies before, and they've brought up out the, the, the police community relationships. And I was like, any of you can join me at a community meeting anytime you want. Mm-hmm. I just did a walkthrough in one of our vulnerable neighborhoods uh, recently, which is a beautiful neighborhood with beautiful people. And I knocked on 15 to 18 doors to survey people, to ask them. I was in plain clothes. Took them a while to recognize me. Um, and then once we started talking, smiles on their faces, positive relationships with the police, asking for more. And I'm like, and, and you know how many news agencies have taken that that feel that way that have taken me up on coming out to see the support that we have in all of our communities and neighborhoods not one not one um and so we that sound that sounds chief like a challenge it's it, it really does and i'm i'm not saying anything other than i like it 
Well, I tell you what, I've said it many times. Um, and you know what, I think a little bit in some, some have died, some of that has died down a little bit. Uh, but it's always been the case. Mm-hmm. Listen, we're our own worst enemy. We have made some re- crucial mistakes uh, in policing our country and different things. There is no question about that. Um, but honorable men and women um, are wanted and needed in their communities, and I hear that every day. I hear that every time I go to a community meeting. You're visible in the city, like what you just said, walking door to door. I've seen you snap selfies with kids. That makes you real. That makes you relatable. But I don't know if you can take your personality to some of the other cities because of what you said. And kudos to the mayor for, for, for being your, one of your biggest cheerleaders, it sounds like. No, the mayor's... You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to do it by yourself as well. No, I can't do it by myself. And if not for the mayor, our council, and I have an amazing city manager and a great team as well, the support structure here is, is amazing. Uh, you know, the men and women. And a coach is only as good as his or her team. Yes. Um, and you have great men and women. But I, I guess at the end, of the day, I love doing this job. I mean, I'm not, don't get me wrong. This job is a grind. Um, <laughs> and there are, imagine. you know, and there's people, hey, take some time off, do this, do that. And although I want to and I will, I love the grind. But to do this job right, you got to grind. Um, yeah, but you, you know, got to put your own oxygen mask on every now and then. No, too. you do, you do. And I, but I always say, man, I'll go as hard as I can go for as long as I can go. I mean, I'm not going to be here forever, right? Right. And I have some goals that I want. Um, Are those goals that you can share? Absolutely. They've been the same goals I've had since the day I got this job. That I told my command staff before I even started here is that, you know, uh, I want to reduce violent crime in the city. Um, I want to increase officer morale. I want to increase community trust. And when I want to ensure that when I leave here, that the next chief of police comes from within the city of Dallas, from the Dallas Police Department. I, I did read that, and I love that. Um, I love that because, I mean, so I'm in, I've got a, a leadership development practice. So when I hear things like that, it just, it absolutely fires me up. Because somewhere along the way, well, I shouldn't say, say that. There's always, you've always had some of this, but now it seems like more than ever, people are always fearful of somebody else coming in and taking their job. And yet you're saying, I want somebody to come in and take my job because I want them to be ready. And not only do I want them to be ready, I want to help them get ready. What that tells me is that you have the, the humble approach that is absolutely required in, in your position. But you're only as good as your team. I love it. You're only as good as your team. And one of the things that it does as well is, you know, I truly believe we have amazing leadership here and people that, that will be able to take over. But what it, what it does as a leader, it does a couple things, right? I mean, particularly me, and trust me, coming from California, when I first got here, I heard quite a bit of Don't California or DPD, which, is, <laughs> which was funny. And I wear that as a badge of honor now because I think uh, if anyone said don't that. Don't California they, our DPD. Don't California could, our DPD. I actually, let's make a T-shirt out of that. I like that. <laughs> I, you know what? I might. We might have to work on that. To, that's a great. Actually, that is a great T-shirt that I would wear around. Do not California my DPD. And you know what? That'll spread. Don't California my Texas. Well, that has, well, don't California my Texas, I was already there, but they've made it more specific to don't California my DPD. Okay, okay. Um, but you know what? Letting these commanders know, you know, yeah, I'm coming from the outside. You know, I'm not a new chief. I've been a police chief since 2016. Um, you know, I'm coming up on two years here in the city of Dallas, but being a chief isn't new. And, you know, what, what it does, it, you know, what I hope to do is it gets buy-in. You know, the vision that I have had, that the team has completely embraced, um, our, my success is their success. Their success is mine. 
Um, my hope is to give the keys to a very working car to the next individual from this organization to take it over and take it further than I took it. Well, that's a legacy. That's a legacy. I mean, it, think about it. If you if your kids do better than you do, that's what you want for your children is to do even better than you did. That's legacy. Listen, every leader's mantra. One, there's a few mantras that I have that and lead uh, that I that a lot of leaders have. But you know, when you get somewhere, you want to make it better than when you got there. And regardless where we go as a police department, and there's ebbs and flows, as you well know. Like the next chief that takes over the Dallas Police Department is going to should be saying, I want to make this better than when Chief Garcia was here. They should say that Mm -hmm. if they're not saying that they're not up for the challenge. Right. Because when you become a leader of an organization, particularly one as large as here, you can't put your money in the mattress. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to take chances. You got to act outside the box, not just think outside the box and do things to move that needle. Because if you did not make it better than when you got there then you didn't have a really good leadership run. So I'm asking people to grind hard for me. Um, rise and grind. I use grind all the time. Uh, I, rise and grind is my mantra. And, you know, for people to know, like when I said here, when I first got here, I said, I'm going to do five years here, and then I'll reassess. The best time to leave an organization is if you, you know, if, if our organization is doing really, really well, uh, and I announce, you know, a few years from now that it's my time to step down, I'm sure people will question, you know, why now? You know, things are going so great. Why yeah. are you leaving now? Well, you know what? That's the best time to leave. Absolutely. Because you wanted, you do not want to give the keys to a broken car to somebody. And so that's what my hope is. Um, that, that, and, and again, and I don't say that like as a matter of fact, because truly in my belief that if we can continue to reduce violent crime, if we increase community trust in this police department and it, we, we raise morale in the department, then the decision to not have to go outside to get somewhere should be made easier. Before you got here, the morale was not good. It was not good at all. That, I, I'm not going to act like I haven't heard that. Yeah, I, right. yes, absolutely. That, and that was why it was one of my goals. And, you know, I like to think that men and women uh, are enjoying coming to work. Uh, they're enjoying the support that they're getting, not just from the city, but the administration. And that's the big one. Um, listen, I, I say this all the time, um, you know, if office, we would, we would be dead in the water mm-hmm. if we didn't have proactive police officers that were making investigative stops at two or three in the morning that would uncover a drug dealer with semi-automatic rifles in their car, weapons in their car, what have you, that are dealing drugs that are plaguing our community and preying upon the good residents of the city. We'd be dead in the water if officers didn't do that. But here's the thing. There is not a police chief in this country, myself included, that can force any police officer to make that stop. And the only reason they're going to make that stop is if they feel supported. If they know that, hey, man, if something goes bad, they're going to look at me fairly. It's the only way that they're going to feel that they're going to be, they're going to do that because if they don't feel supported by their city, if they don't feel supported by their administration, they don't have to do that. I can force them to answer 911 calls and be reactive. I can't force any police officer to be proactive. The extraordinary work that these men and women are doing is amazing. Listen, we have a crime plan that we've done that, uh, not to get too into the crime plan, but we measure what's called fidelity in the crime plan, meaning during throughout our crime plan, we need officers being in these certain areas that are high in crime at certain times. Mm-hmm. The last period we measured it 
90%. Now, there's reasons why officers wouldn't go, calls for service and things of that nature. Right. But the fidelity in our crime plan for the last cycle was 90%. That means 90% of the time, officers are where they're at when they need to be there to help carry on the crime plan. You're not in any hotspot policing. You will not, in any literature you will find that the criminologists will tell you, you will not find 90%. The reason you find 90% is because these men and women are invested, they're bought in, they know they feel, they know they're supported, uh, and they're doing amazing work. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to, I want to switch back to the leadership side of things and th this will be a little more somber. Um, you mentioned earlier that you have had to, I think, I think the, the terminology used was give a flag. Um, I think that's probably got to be the hardest thing that a leader can do is, is bury one of their own. Um, and I'm curious what stands out to you about that. I'll be very honest. The phone call stands out about that. You know, as police chiefs, any phone call that I get after a certain time at night, and I know it could happen all the time, my heart drops. Um, when I get a call, um, cause I don't get a call all the time. And I remember every call I've gotten, um, at the times that I've gotten them or around the times that I've gotten them, uh, and what stands the most is the call. Um, that is, uh, that is gut wrenching, particularly when you know that your officers are doing what you asked them to do. Right. I mean, that's what resonates the most with me. Um, you know, we're asking our officers to do an incredibly dangerous job, a dangerous job that has to be done by stopping the criminal element that, that preys on our city and, uh, and asking them to do that job. And it's the phone call, um, that stands, those are the, that, that is what stands out the most is getting the call. When it's late at night, your phone rings, your stomach just has to drop. Oh, it doesn't matter. I mean, it takes a good for them to tell me what, what's going on. Now, don't get me wrong. It may not be great either. I'm not happy about the call, but I tell you what, just to make sure, um, you know, I'll never forget um, getting those calls and, uh, you know, when, and just hearing, you know, hearing, I mean, we used more, we used plain English in, in, in California, but, you know, we have a term here, low sick. Um, and hearing the words, uh, you know, the officer's low sick. Um, that means odds are they're, they're not going to make it. Um, and uh, I remember hearing those words. Um, I, I remember hearing them in plain English when I was in California. And as a chief, I mean, that's getting the call. I, I, I would venture a guess if you were to ask 10 chiefs uh, and you, and maybe if you wouldn't say it off the bat, but if you gave them an option, what do you remember the most? Getting the phone call is probably what, um, what a lot of them would say to you. So you have children. Yes. You have a lot of children you're responsible for, um, meaning the children of your officers and, and in the community. If you could boil down your experience as a police officer, as a chief of police, to one lesson that you could impart to others and really get everyone to embrace because you've lived it, you know it, you understand it. 
what would that lesson be? Don't ignore your kids. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, your kids, if you, if you're, if you are married, things of that, you know, and, and you have a family, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, as you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen on this job that if you're committed to this job, you're going to miss events. But you know what? There's 24 useful hours in every day. Um, I still remember days of, uh, of great story. I mean, uh, at an officer, I was a captain, which was the equivalent of a major here in charge of, uh, our, our personal crimes. And we had an officer involved shooting one day. Um, but that whole previous day I was coaching pop Warner all day. And so it was like all day from like eight in the morning till like eight at night. We were at the field all day and I get home, we get the call and you know, at, uh, you know, as I'm sitting in my office at three in the morning, as we're going through the shooting, I still remember putting my feet up on my desk and going, yeah, I'm here, uh, but we won that Pop Warner game. <laughs> I, I guess what I'm saying is, is to manage your time and don't ignore those that, that care about you and you care about. Um, and yes, it's hard. Um, but as I made mention, this job's a grind. Don't ignore the ones you love. Um, you know, yes, you got to work long hours, you got to work weekends, you got to do all these things, man. But there are times when you don't. Uh, and instead of spending those times frivolously uh, with maybe acquaintances, friends, or what have you, understand that, you know, a good officer has a supportive family. Um, and if that family's supporting you, they, they, they need to be that priority when you have that free time. You've given me a lot of time, and I really, truly appreciate it. And I want to be cognizant. I, I mean, I've got so many other questions I want to ask you and whatnot. We'll but, do it again. Well, if if you'll if you'll come in, we'll do it again. Absolutely. Um, but you know, the the most important thing that that we do at Carry the Load is making sure that we never forget to honor those who never got to take off the uniform. Um, and as those in our Carry the Load community and movement know. Um, we couldn't go overseas in the military and do what we do without your department and departments like yours keeping the streets safe back home. I'm curious to know who you're carrying. You know, with that question, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, and I don't even know if this is acting outside the box, but I had a very good friend uh, in San Jose. Uh, his name's Jason Woodall. Mm -hmm. Jason was a sergeant that got promoted a year before I did. He is the reason that I promoted to sergeant when I did. Um, and I love Jason to death. And Jason, Jason had some demons. And he did what a lot of officers do when they have that and turn to alcohol for it. And Jason ended up getting uh, let go by the department. And I remain friend, friends with him forever. Um, you know, I remember during some issues that he had that I would speak about him positively. And, you know, but he can never, he never got rid of his demons. And he ended up passing away um, a couple years ago uh, on alcohol related type of, of, of issues. And I guess I want to carry him 
because I wish I would have done more for him as a friend. I wish I would have been able to tell him, dude, that's enough. Or, dude, if you need help, let's go find help. You know, as we're on this officer wellness thing, and I, I truly hope his family doesn't get upset that if they hear this or what have you, had nothing for love for that individual. He was an amazing friend, and I wish I would have done more for him. Um, and if I'm allowed to, it would be my honor to carry him because I think us, whether in the military or law enforcement, when we see a friend in trouble, we can't just let him continue to go down that path. Um, and if anyone out there listens to this or hears that story, I'm fairly certain you know as well as I do that there's people in those circles right now that probably can do more for someone who's going down a destructive path. And, you know, it's pressures of the job that come with it. Uh, but he was an amazing police officer. He was an amazing friend. Um, and so, you know, if I'm allowed to, that's who I would probably uh, carry the load for. Well, you're allowed to because you're the chief of police. And uh, <laughs> um, Jason Woodall is his name. And we'll make sure we keep saying his name. I appreciate it. Thank you. Chief, thank you very much for the time. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your service as well. Thank you for having me.